Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Prison Warden Matt Freeman, and I'm here with my prisoner, Scott Daly. Scott, report for the intro. Yes, sir. I, I know I've done some sketchy things, but it's just that this life situation is really getting out of control, and I was just wondering if... We have a no-tolerance policy on whining, Mr. Daly. Get on with it. Yeah, yes, sir. As you say, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert and mean person, guide me, a first-time reader, through Wild Bill's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, Matt, we are covering Arc 23, Drone. And Matt, this is probably one of the shortest arcs we've we've done in a while, um, but I actually think this might be my favorite that's interesting. Could you talk a little bit about why that might be without going into too much detail? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think this this achieves some of the highest highs that we've seen in some of the other arcs. Um, there's still moments in other arcs that I like more than this one. But I think, like, this, like, this arc is, like, stuffed with potential. Like, there's, like, we've, we've moved on to this whole new thing and we're um covering this whole different world that taylor's entering now as she struggles her way through her first weeks in the wards and like i really feel like this story can just go anywhere like i I see the potential i see the new interactions between characters i see the conflicts that are coming and 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 i just love it all i I just love it all yeah it's really interesting it's like you've taken this character who you've fallen in love with and gotten to know really really well and then you just move them into a whole different setting, like you said, with with all different characters and, and whole, like a whole new set of challenges. And they, they're carrying almost nothing from their previous life. Um, and that's a, that's a really compelling way of framing a, a, a part of a story, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, this would not work. This would not be my favorite if it wasn't for all that, that you know, 22 arcs of backstory um, I think that's a lot like when you're trying to pick your favorite thing out of something, that's a lot of what you forget. Like the reason why you like this thing is because of all the things that came before it. This would not be like if this was just the story, the story wouldn't be as good. But this is the story now and it's improved by everything that, that Taylor has gone through in the past. And it's just so it's it's different. It's I don't want to say refreshing because that feels like like it implies that the stuff before it was exhausting. And I guess it was to a certain extent because her life was so stressed and so crazy. Um, and, and of course that doesn't entirely go away, but it's just, it's just different and fun. And like the, the first half of this arc is very lighthearted, even as Taylor kind of struggles to find her way. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I like every, every word I loved. Yeah, I think fun is a good word because it's it's a different flavor of fun than the other the other parts because it's yeah. a lot less dire, like you said. Until we get to that that ending. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that I think when we're, I think we're both talking about the main part of the arc, excluding uh, excluding the ending when we when we talk about it not being dire. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Let's let's move on. Um, right. In terms of announcements. We are recording this week, uh, a week before you're hearing it, so we haven't had a chance to read your comments about last week's episode, and this time it's my fault, because uh, most of next week I'm going to be out of town for a conference. Um, how, how dare you, sir? I know. Yeah, I, I should have just just <laughs> brought all my mic equipment to the conference and somehow made sure that the hotel had proper Wi-Fi, I guess. 
you know, back in my video gaming days, that's what I would do. <laughs> I would bring my gaming laptop when I had to travel for work. And I remember like, <laughs> this is a total tangent, but I remember um, the internet at the hotel had like you signed in once and it was good for 24 hours. Uh-huh. And I remember playing and like my 24 hour time clock up because I would log in at the same time every night and uh-huh. get disconnected and everyone would die and it'll be my fault. It's <laughs> uh, a blast uh, from the past. That's good stuff all right let's talk about worm though yeah so yeah no comments and questions because we haven't had enough time to digest the ones that you just posted because you just posted them yep and so we're just gonna move on to the beat by beat so we've got weaver in prison going to school and reading books and defiant comes by to take her out for a temporary trip and she's actually really happy to see Defiant, and they talk frankly about their former hard feelings for each other. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how this relationship has has changed and grown over over the the length of the book. Um, the thing I like most about this opening, though, Matt, is when she first hears Defiant's slightly digital voice. The first thing that jumps into her head is that Bakut is here, um, <laughs> and I think this is a clever way of setting up in the arc that we're going to have like. A, a very introspective within Taylor type of arc here. Taylor is, she's clearly thinking through a lot of the events of her past few months. The fact that, that Bakuda, Bakuda's voice even is still so fresh on her mind that that would be the first thing that she's jumping to kind of indicates that, that she's, she's been thinking and processing this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's part of her paranoia. I think that, that, that yeah. she's cultivated because there, there were, there were some moments uh, last arc or maybe the arc before where, where she's she's actually thinking like you know I'm becoming kind of paranoid because uh, there really are people out to get me and uh, and they could be coming at any moment with their terrible parahuman powers um, <laughs> and and in this arc it's actually the reverse because you you have this character who who's been conditioned to to be on edge all the time and she's just kind of chilling most of the time and at most she gets to stretch her legs and do a little bit of field work where she's not allowed to be effective so yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so um, she's in a real prison. Um, it's like a medium security prison, but it's an adult prison. And it's one that has kind of a rehabilitative slant rather than uh, being one of the bad ones, I guess. So nobody messes with her, which I guess makes sense. Um, and then on the way out of the prison, she speaks with the warden. Uh, and she's in a little bit of trouble because she took care of the prison's body lice problem without permission. And the warden makes it clear that she's not to get in a fight at all on this outing. <laughs> uh, it's going to go well. Yeah. Um, I, I like I like that we take the time with this beat because I think it illustrates something that you touched about on last week. How like like even if Danny says no to Taylor joining the wards, does not vouch for her, her power doesn't turn off. It's She's always going to have it. Mm-hmm. So we see this in this moment that she's in this prison She's not even really using it, but like she can still sense each and every one of these uh, pubic lice uh-huh. that's, that's grossly hanging out on prisoners um, and that she can't like she can't deal with it. And you kind of understand like that would be so gross if you knew exactly what a dude's private parts looked like constantly because of the bugs crawling all over them. Yeah, that's the worst thing I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, the most interesting thing to me here um, is how she describes the warden and i'll read this real quick Uh, she wasn't what i expected from a person in charge of a prison she made me think of a stern teacher instead she was old pushing 60 if not well past it and ramrod straight and thin her her graying hair was tied back into a short braid that didn't quite reach the bottom of her neck 
She was tough in a gnarled, craggy sort of way, like the veteran actors of cardboard cowboy movies, but female. And this is really interesting to me because Taylor has historically used her description of authority figures as a way of like demonstrating her extreme distaste for them. But I don't think that that is here. I mean, she's describing how she looks, but it's not like in a this person's disgusting, this person's gross, this person's annoying type of way. There's a, there's a, a tinge of respect behind it that I don't think we've seen in Taylor very much. And I think that that shows a little bit of the change in her that's happening. And, and you follow this up with this string of yes, ma'ams. As she responds to her and a general, general lack of talking back, um, though she still thinks the thing, she just doesn't actually say them. And I think this is absolutely a different kind of Taylor. Yeah, she's she's really trying here, like to, to, to be good, even though it's really hard for her. Yeah, um, to, she she has to she, like and, and also like internally, we're not seeing her like plot behind the woman's back and lie to her. She's like she's like she's from her internal monologue. She genuinely seems to be complying yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely uh and and for now at least for yeah, now right yeah so yeah um as they as they leave um she and defiant talk and defiant points out their similarities they're both the the two of them defiant and uh and weaver are both leaders who made mistakes in the past and they're working off their debts and uh, and he confirms to us that she is a member of the wards, which you know we, we the readers didn't know because the last we heard, Danny was was vacillating on that question. Yeah. Um. But but regardless, though, they they have to actually get some some team some team leader specifically to accept her because uh, she can't join the Rockton Bay wards, unfortunately. And and everybody else kind of has a mixed opinion of her. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I like that. Once again, we're getting another beat of comparing other characters to the protagonist, uh, which we talk about a lot on here. Um, I, I think it's interesting here because Define is pointing out their similarities and they do have a lot of surface level similarities and that they've mad, they've both been leaders and they both made bad choices. But I think the, the choices came from a very different place. I think Define and, and Taylor, although they, they had a similar path are very different type of people. Um, but I still think it's a nice thing to point out. Yeah. Yeah. I also really like this beat um, that happens here in regards to Miss Militia being officially declared the new PRT director in Brockton Bay. Um, Taylor's commenting about how uh, she has to be in this tough position that she didn't really ask for. And Defiant basically replies, she'll manage and and then stops. And Taylor comments that, that she can't tell if it was trust in his teammate or if he wasn't particularly empathetic on that front, uh, that there's still maybe hard feelings because she's the one that replaced him. And I think you could technically interpret this either way, but I like to think of this as just a little bit of that old arms master that's still creeping out of Defiant. Because I, I, I do think people can change, but it's not the light switch type of thing. It's a slow, gradual process. And I think Defiant is still like getting past some of his earlier tendencies. And I think this is works for showing Defiant's process, but also as a showing that, that Taylor herself, her transition to hero is not going to be quick it's not going to be fast it's going to be a long arduous process that's going to take time yeah that, that's that's right we and we see those those moments later in the chapter where he's sort of being his old arms master self and then he'll clearly be like silently reprimanded by dragon and then, <laughs> yeah. and then correct himself and uh and, and i mean that's one thing to point out is he he has dragon there being his little angel on his short on his shoulder um and uh yeah, t- yeah taylor taylor only has the devil on her shoulder in the form of uh, a passenger who wants her to kill everybody all the time um <laughs> yep 
And, and, and I, I liked your, so, so j- j- to your remark about like them being similar and, and maybe not that similar, I think there's a case that they're, they're actually pretty similar in a lot of ways because they're like, they're both these like humorless, very like goal oriented people um, who, who view things in black and white and and there there's definitely like flaws that Armors Master had that that Taylor doesn't and vice versa. But the, I think they do share that core of kind of like like business first single mindedness. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they take they take Taylor in one of the dragon ships. I'm I'm gonna not say that over and over, but they basically just use the dragon ships <laughs> to go everywhere. Um, they start off at New York. Uh, and it's a very classy HQ, apparently. Uh, so P- P- Prism is there. Uh, oops. <laughs> um, and Rhyme, who we've met before at the Echidna fight, is now a team leader. And uh, s- some of the others we know, some we don't. We've got uh, Revel, Dispatch, Jouster, Vantage, Tecton, Hoyden, and Clockblocker. And Dr. Yamada is also there. And so is Glenn Chambers, the head of PR for the Protectorate. So I'm guessing we're going to have a pretty long name game at the end of this episode because there are so many new new characters we're introduced to here. That's the plan. Yeah. Uh, I, I really liked this one part as they enter here where um, Taylor notes that Prism at least had an apparent reason to dislike me, but Dispatch is expressed and suggested he came to that conclusion all on his own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there's, there's a moment here where she's... Like she's being quiet, and she says, "She says I'm intimidated." And then, and is it Dr. Yamada who asks her, "How do you usually yep. handle something like that?" Um, and she, and she, you know, this is one of those examples, like you said, where she can't just be herself. She has to kind of like second guess everything because she thinks by being by being more intimidating in exchange. Um, but she, and 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 she she knows she realizes that she doesn't know how to approach this because she's fallen back on being scary for so long. And then she, and then I think what kind of shows the character growth is that she admits that she's not sure anymore rather than, you know, doubling down, which would be the right. typical behavior. Right. It would be very easy for old Taylor to posture here and just admit that, say, well, I would be mean back or to lie or to do something else. But she, she says the truth and she even admits to herself that this is the truth. Like I am, I am admitting something while also not incriminating myself. Yeah. Um, that I do, uh, the, the the truth is I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore. Yeah, it's interesting and and of course expected that she she can't just turn off her her like image consciousness because she cho- the thing she chooses to say she says it was the truth and it wasn't self incriminating. So right. it's like she's she's filtering. She's gonna she's gonna say the truth, yeah, but she's gonna make sure that it's still makes her look good, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and uh, beginning the clock blocker bits, we get clock blocker standing up for her when other people are kind of, uh, ragging on her. Uh, he stands up for her as somebody strong enough to have on the good guy's side because, you know, he, she's demonstrated that certainly. Yeah. He's great through all this. Like I love him through every one of these interactions. Um, he's, he's basically here just because he wants to see this because he thinks it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, like he, he specifically says that he like is going to have to take extra shifts 
on patrol because he's missing them to be here for this and <laughs> that just makes it even better um and i know i know taylor can't be part of the brockton bay wards i know that's just it can't happen but like it's a real shame because every time these two are in the room together it's just great yeah yeah they, they have a long a long relationship of being uh uh enemies but but in that cops and robbers way where they've never really crossed that line so yeah, so uh, Dispatch wants her to run a trial exercise and to have the thinkers analyze her performance. So, so much for, don't get in any fights. That lasted a minute. Yeah, right. Not, not only do these people not care, but I'm pretty sure Taylor doesn't really care about that either. No. She's, no. Yeah, got their priorities straight. So she heads out with some protectorate capes to fight some adepts. When we've heard a little bit about them before, uh, as they're walking, we learned a little bit about New York City. Apparently, they can ride super tinker bikes via the subway system. This is the the coolest thing ever. Yeah, um, I I like that. Like they need to like that. You just can't get one right when you're on the wards. You have to like earn it. You have to right. be on there for a while before you earn the right to do this. It's such a cool little detail, and we're yeah. gonna get a lot of those throughout this uh this whole arc i'm, I'm going to touch on this in a, a detail a bit later but we're really expanding the scope of taylor's world throughout this arc yeah did you not just immediately imagine what the tinker subway bikes looked like oh yeah yeah oh, yeah, yeah I, I wonder you know <clears throat> I, I know i know Wildo like wrote a lot of worm stuff prior to actually writing worm like what i mean is like the, the in this world so i wonder if he had fleshed out all these other towns and and characters before before starting and now and that's why they seem so real or if this is just an example of how deft he is with creating places yeah it could be a a little of both i mean if you look at if you if you say okay new york city what's different between this and brockton bay the first thing is well it's fucking massive so we need like things are just going to be different here just based sheerly on size um, so we need a way to more effectively get around. We need all this other stuff. And he kind of solves that all one by one. And I like like the the adepts um, like uh, what's their, like they have a seniority and like a caste yeah. structure to them where like they're powerful ones and not so powerful ones because the city's so sprawling. It's so big that they can't have like a central meeting place and stuff like that. They need that kind of organizational structure. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I think we should put a put a pin in that because I didn't think about it until now. But we we see the adepts; they have this kind of structure of of almost sem- maybe I'm overstating it here, but almost kind of hazing the the younger the, the the newer members. It reminds me of a certain cape group that we meet at the end of this interlude, at the end oh, of this yeah. arc, rather. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some some contrasts between these different groups of of capes and how they how they operate. I think that's that's probably intentional. Yeah, <clears throat> different different hives in which these drones exist. So so as they're walking around, uh, heading to heading to, to the to the fight, Glenn, the PR guy, steps in on the on the radio and he insists that she only use nice and cuddly bugs for this mission. Use her power in a less threatening way. Um, and of course, Clock Locker loves it, and <laughs> and and we love you know we love that he loves it. We, we we're, we're like for, for once we're kind of amused at Taylor's uh, discomfiture. Um, so she summons butterflies and ladybugs, and she's she says they're really going to make me butterfly girl. Yeah, I mean the the best part about this is that she summons the the butterflies 
like almost as a joke. Like it's like, all right, look, this is like, look at the, how ridiculous this is if I do it like this. And Glenn yeah. is like, oh, that's perfect. And <laughs> she's just like, wait, what? No, that was like I was pointing this out to show how crazy it was. Um, and then she has to do it. And yeah. I think this is this is the first time or maybe the second time that we're really starting to to nail that whole that that beat that continues through the rest of this arc um, of Taylor, like forced to neuter herself for the sake of this image, forced to um, second guess herself, forced to behave differently, forced to behave unnaturally because she's no longer that that queen. She is just the drone. And I think that's why the, the arc heading here is is very is very fitting. She has to behave in, in such a manner, she has to follow rules. Um, she can't, she can't act as she normally would. Yeah, yeah. Um, this and just struck me as completely not uh, relevant here exactly, but I realized that I was thinking about the 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 drone thing, the idea of queen versus drone, and then I realized that um, there's actually a parallel in the interludes in this arc and the last one in that. Um, the interlude character of this arc is absolutely a drone and the interlude character of the last arc spent most of his time in various cells. Oh yeah, um, you're right. So yeah. that was, that yeah, well, cool. just your names, you're so good at your names. Yeah. All right. C- c- carry on with the, <laughs> yeah. with the discussion. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about before we go on. And one of the reasons I like this arc so much, but it's very difficult to talk about in this kind of podcast format is like the dialogue throughout these team scenes, throughout all these people interacting with each other is so great. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen Taylor like observe the camaraderie of the wards in the past, but now she's like in the middle of it. And we have all this back and forth, quick dialogue, people joking around with each other, people seemingly enjoying their lives, which is very different <laughs> from what she's seen. And like they're giving each other a hard time. They're giving Taylor a hard time. Um, they're making fun of her, but they're also like kind of scared of her. It's just very energetic. It's fun. It's well-paced dialogue. And it makes these early chapters, it makes these these first few missions that Taylor go on kind of sing. Like it, it just moves fast and loose and fun um, it's just, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's really, really fun. Yeah. I, I think this is like an example of how his writing style has changed and, and improved kind of over the course of the story, even because like one thing I'll notice uh, about these, about, about this chapter is like a lot less time is spent describing the characters appearances, um, relative to like, for example, like the first big villain meeting in Brockton Bay where they went to that, that like, I don't know if it was actually a bar, but it was like a meeting place where where everyone was 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 either deaf or mute. I forget the detail. That was like a year ago, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, like I feel like there was a lot more description there, and and in this, we're seeing these people mostly be characterized by their dialogue, and and I see that as being like a a stronger and more efficient and, and more economical way of of doing it. Yeah, especially in like like a kind of almost action scene introduction way like yeah a lot of these guys were we're really meeting them for the first time on this mission so we're like we're having to characterize them in the middle of action beats and it's tough to do that with long paragraphs of just explanations of uh this is what this person looks like. This is what kind of costume they're wearing. And and there still is some of that. I mean, I'm not going to say there's not, but yeah, we, Wildbo spends a lot of time characterizing through dialogue. I think you're absolutely right. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, they they get to the building where they know the adepts are hiding out, and she scouts the building with her bugs, and she identifies who's present. And then she can't help herself. She she uses her terrifying swarm voice to warn the civilians away. <laughs> um, and the other protectorate capes defeat the adepts. That they just kind of run in and defeat them effortlessly. And Weaver is is kind of you know upset about this, and she heads up to try to show herself to be of value. Um, and then right as she kind of arrives at the, at the room, uh, she realizes that they missed one of the adepts, the 13th hour who sort of stuns all the protectorate capes, including Weaver. Yeah. This is a really, really great moment because we do, we see her like desperate to prove herself. So she like rushes into the place, hoping that there's still something left for her to do, which kind of ignores the fact that she served as recon, which was a pretty important important part of this whole thing like she scoped it all out she gave them the entire layout of the place who was where and of course she, she did miss a person um but but i think she was not giving herself enough credit there for how important the recon portion of this whole thing was yeah right like i, I feel like if she had stayed down there uh, yeah i don't know i don't think she would have been blamed if if things had, had turned south no um, i don't think so yeah but I, I, it is of course in classic taylor sense that she does insert herself in her she does rush in and the situation escalates and she's able to get them out of it because that's what taylor does yeah you know one thing that that like the the mention of her using her swarm voice it kind of drew my attention to the fact that like her whole like appearance i'm not just talking about costume but like previously she she had that thing where like she needed to be wearing a cloak of of writhing bugs at all times to feel <laughs> yeah. to feel like secure and 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 you know balanced and now she presumably has has almost no bugs on her because she's being discouraged from having a swarm um and and so it that's that's a huge like she's she's almost naked in that sense she she doesn't have her she doesn't really have her power the way she's used to having it at yeah. all you're right, but I don't. I don't think we see her specifically think about that, which is yeah. kind of interesting. And it almost as if, as if like, she has just accepted that as part of being Weaver, like that she's differentiated Skitter from Weaver so much that like Skitter needs that cloak of bugs. Skitter needs to constantly be covered in that. Weaver, on the other hand, is different and doesn't need that. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't know. I don't yeah. know if that's tr that's accurate or not, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it must be something like that because because it wasn't just it wasn't just put on. You know, it wasn't all fake. It was just, she actually kind of came to rely on those bugs being there. Um, right. So so this is like a choice for her uh, to to craft a new identity and not have that anymore. I like yeah, I like absolutely. This. Yeah, yeah. So even though she's like stunned and sort of almost like asleep on her feet, she's still able to use her power and her power starts kind of tying everyone up with silk cords uh, that she's been preparing. And so she's basically moving the cords and the, and the spiders and the, and the other more useful bugs around in the midst of the cloud of butterflies that obscure what she's doing. Um, and then she gags herself on a cockroach to wake herself up, which is such a skater thing to do. Uh, and then she does the same to wake up Tecton also. So, and then she ends up getting burned by an exploding fire telekinetic bird thing. But eventually she wakes up enough wards that, that the good guys win the fight. Don't you just love that the way she does this is by having them all choke on bugs? Yeah. Because it's like, hey, everyone, remember how I killed Alexandria a few weeks ago by filling her lungs with bugs? Here, I'm going to put a bug in your mouth. 
you know, to, to help you. Yeah, and isn't this, uh, I think we, we kind of skipped over this, but this is the New York team, right? And wasn't Alexandria their um, their their leader, basically? Like the, I thought they, she was L.A., but I don't know. No, I thought she was New York. Well, yeah. I, I seem to remember there being that whole, in that later chapter, that whole L.A. team that, like, was led by her. But maybe, I don't know. You could be right. Okay. There's, yeah, maybe I'm, we'll just move on. All right. <laughs> um. I, I I do think this moment starts another thread throughout the, the, this arc, though, um, and it's it's like you see that Taylor has to break the rules here to win a little bit, right? Because she was told to only use butterflies, but she doesn't. She use she masks what she's doing with other bugs. She but she stings them, um, and and you kind of start to see why Taylor would always win when she had to come up against the wards because because wards the protectorate cannot go all out they can't do it they 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 don't have that option and it's limiting it it really is yeah yeah um so yeah so so after after their meeting uh, after the after this mission where she sort of proved herself to be really useful but also didn't quite follow the letter of the law uh defiant takes her back to prison and she's frustrated uh, that she'll have to figure out a whole new way of fighting that isn't based around being maximally terrifying. Yeah, and that's because every instinct inside her wants her to escalate to that terrifying place every time she's backed into a corner now, right? Yeah. And and that's because literally since the beginning of this book, she's beginning positive reinforcement for acting in that way. I mean, the first thing she did as a cape was sting Lung so much that his wiener fell off. <laughs> and since that point she's gone harder she's been more fierce more scary and she's been rewarded for it every time and suddenly suddenly all that's reversed she has to relearn every cape thing that she's ever done um and it's even more kind of subconscious than that as as we see in a couple chapters yeah this is a great thing to put your protagonist through because it's it, there's so much doubt for her of like whether she's made the right choice because she as, as she says fairly shortly like she put all of her eggs in this basket and she's really not sure if she made the right choice because this is so so much harder for her than yeah. being a fearsome villain was absolutely yeah so then we move into 23.2 and we visit las vegas and we meet some of the uh the las vegas capes including uh, the guy who I, I think is their leader satirical uh, and the other vegas team members and they all have kind of unusual costumes uh, which which is interesting because that goes to that, that that note we were pointing out of seeing how how these areas and these groups are different, and all of the Vegas capes are angry. Yeah, and I think this is where I wanted to point out that um, that that jet setting nature of this arc, um, because so far we've been in New York, now we're going to go to Vegas, um, we're going to be in India before the end of this arc. But uh, the thing that I, I I was thinking about is that we've never left Brockton Bay. Um, when we were with Taylor, every time we have left Brockton Bay, it's been in one of the interludes or, or one of those interlude arcs. So Taylor and her story has always been centered on this one city. But but now she's left Skitter and that world behind. And I think this is a very intentional shift. If you want to view like the dawning of the Weaver personality as Taylor kind of transitioning from childhood to adulthood. And I, and I think there's some support within this arc that that's what's happening because her her world is suddenly getting way more complicated. Things are harder. It's not as easy for her. Um, you can look at this whole shift from visiting from just being Brockton Bay to opening up to the rest of the world as like 
the adult recognizing that the stakes in the world are much higher, are much greater, um, are much bigger for everything. Um, things are way more complicated than just your little city by the bay, Taylor. Like you have New York has their own way of doing things. Vegas has their own problems and their own things going on. Uh, like China and, and India have their own like types of capes. They have their own like whole different cape structure. And I think that's what we're seeing throughout this, that, that she is, is starting to realize that the world is bigger and more complicated. It makes me think about that, uh, that hero's journey sort of phase where the hero kind of leaves the mundane world and enters the, you know, the world of the, of the adventure, which is usually sort of a, a magical world. Except what's interesting about Worm is that this would be the second time that's happened because the first time it happened obviously was when she goes from being somebody who kind of, who has her powers but isn't really a cape cape to being, you know, an undersider, I, I would say that I would say that's that's that transition. She enters the world of of the capes, but even that is like, you know, the first, you know, we're on arc twenty three, and she's only now emerging from, you know, I don't want to say the kiddie pool because she faced a lot of, you know, terrifying challenges in Brockton Bay, but like you said, she's she's moving out into the real world of of much bigger concerns, um, and it's almost like we're starting the hero's journey over at that at that relatively early step for this character i think you're absolutely right there um i I think like and and i i think you're right that we say this in no way to belittle everything that she's gone through and everything that she's done but brockton bay is a one very small piece of this world and we've never really gotten to experience that and neither has has taylor and now she is yeah yeah so that's it's a really cool thing to do in a in a story like this um, it's a little bit, little bit unconventional, and I like that. Yeah, but I mean, I think it shows Wildbo has a grasp of these kind of um, hero myth type archetypes, and he mm-hmm. has such a good grasp of them that he can explore them in new and interesting ways. Like, like there's there's this idea that cliche is bad, and I I hate that because whenever you're annoyed by something being cliche, it's because it was used in a boring way. Not you're not mad at the cliche itself; you're mad at how the cliche was used. Because right. obviously cliches are just shortcuts in storytelling that get a point across. Like, yeah. So like using superheroes. I mean, yeah, like, yeah like, exactly. Like you can, you, I mean, I prefer the term trope. I think cliches, I guess cliche is just, cliche. it's just like, a, it's just a pejorative, <laughs> pejorative form of the word trope really. In in my opinion, I don't know. It's probably more nuanced than that, but that's kind of how people tend to use it. Yeah. I think you're probably right. It's, it's using cliche. It's a little cliche. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> all right um, um yeah so so talking about the um vegas capes they're apparently mostly thinkers tinkers and strangers um rather than you know rather than blasters or, or, or whatever because in vegas most of the crime that you would see would involve you know casinos and, and the types of things that those types of capes would be uh would be useful in yeah that makes a lot of sense i, I... Taylor in this moment, though, chooses to echo Tattletale's arcs and arcs old idea of the game amongst villains and capes, this game of cops and robbers. And I think Rhyme has like the absolute best response to that ever, where she says, except things escalate. One side loses too many times in a row. They push things too far. And there's always collateral damage. I notice civilians don't factor into that explanation. Um, this is of course like literally exactly what's happened in brockton bay i mean that's that's literally like one side won too many times this time it was the villains and the prt pushed back 
and things went too far and there was collateral damage and civilians suffer. I mean, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, and, and we see in Vegas that the same thing is happening, that, that things are, are, es- are like escalating. And, and I think rhyme literally says the strip is dying uh-huh. because like, this has just happened too many times and it's devastating them. And, and like Vegas could also be like, like I know Brockton Bay has been through a lot of shit, but Vegas could be like the game played out to its end. Yeah. Um, possibly. Yeah. Right. It's the, I think, I think, even from the moment Tattletale gave her cops and robbers speech, it, it rang hollow because I don't remember, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like even when we were discussing that, when it happened, we, we were like, and what about all those like civilians who get yeah. blown up in the, in the fights and, and yeah. all the, all the buildings and basically exactly what rhyme says. Yeah. Um, and, well, and the interesting yeah. thing is that, that what, when rhyme pushes back on that, Taylor's like, I'm not saying I, I believed in it. It just sounds like what's going on here. And it's like, uh-huh. well, then why, I mean, why'd you say it? Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> I think she does. I mean, she's said before. I think, yeah. Like she does believe it. She's she, talked about the game. Like whenever she was yelling at, at tag. Yeah. She's like, you broke the rules of the game. Like she, she very much is invested in that on some level. I don't think she believes uh, it, it to the literal level of what it was because she's annoyed by the PRT for allowing this game to go on. Yeah. Um, well, but, she, she she's right that he broke the rules of the game and caused the escalation. But what she's missing is that the breaking of the rules and the escalation beyond the rules is inevitable and always happens right. all the time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, rhyme takes Weaver to visit somebody in a cell. It's an albino cape named pretender. And apparently this is why the Vegas protectorate is mad. Their friend, uh, pretender killed somebody on behalf of cauldron. And isn't this like a, a really cool example? Like we're seeing the complications that are going on in the PRT. Because um, we've we've heard that the Protectorate has like this cauldron cape problem where they don't know who they are and they're starting to find out. Um, but we've never been inside it. We've never seen it. We've never been on the team that's suffering from this where someone was apparently working for cauldron the whole time and, and cauldron presumably gave them an order that they had to follow or die. Um, and, and this really shows us that they, how bad things are splintering within the protectorate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think even though we know nothing about these Vegas capes, we kind of like feel their, feel their pain and their betrayal. I think yeah. it's really effective. Well, Bible starts the chapter with this, this list of, of Vegas capes that are all pissed off. And it even says like Taylor even comments, like everyone's upset and this time it's not about me. <laughs> um, so it's a pretty good tone setting moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the thinker who is with them, uh, basically she's one of those danger sense capes, and she tells them that her power tells her there's a lot of risk surrounding the situation. Isn't this, like, hilariously done? Like, the way it's described? (laughs) Because, like, she basically touches her middle fingers together and forms a circle and says orange, moves her hands further apart, says red, and then makes a circle as big as a pizza and says yellow, and rhymes like, Oh shit, that bad? And you're just like, wait, what? What? Yeah, and I imagine her having a really serious face while she while she does these hand motions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I love all of the the different uh, thinker kind of pr- predictive powers and how they manifest. We've seen a few, right? We've seen them with uh, with a kid now, where they're like, I forget what it was, but yeah, it was these very abstract things where right. it's simultaneously ridiculous, but you also know exactly what it means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like. We do it all the time in our government, like the the terror 
colors levels yeah, like right. it's it's really just abstract and meaningless until unless until you attach certain meaning to it but yeah yeah so um they talk about the boogeyman the woman who runs around censoring cauldron leaks um we know who this is of course and and uh taylor asks what's her classification and the answer is don't worry about the number just run <laughs> and i think that's pretty accurate based on everything we've seen uh, about contessa until this point um the interesting tidbit I, that jumped out to me here is that a cauldron is apparently letting some things intentionally leak now, like to the point where they say, like, if they were if they were trying to stop leaks, it would imply that they're really bad at their job. But they think that Contessa is so uh, effective that there's no way that's happening. So I, I don't know what to do with that information, but it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from commenting. But yeah, it is interesting <laughs> that that's that that's the case. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, yes, there's some more great dialogue uh, as Weaver talks with Leister, I believe it is, the the newest member of the wards. Um, you're new, I asked, raising my eyebrows. I've only been a ward for a month. Only two fights in a month. I felt a pang of envy. Yeah, and and, and I think Wildbow is going to swing around to the central idea in a big way in that, that whole chapter four conversation we'll get to. But I just wanted to call the setup here that that this idea that life as a villain is is infinitely more dangerous um, is something that Taylor's becoming acutely aware of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so the uh, the dragon ship brings her her butterflies and she releases them to to cover the area, and of course she can't help but make another joke here, Scott. Go, my pretties. <laughs> I said monotone. Go seek out my enemies and smother them. Oh, Taylor. And then, of course, Prefab says, I know you were joking, but no smothering. No, no smothering, I said, sighing. Sighing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but like, so this is, uh, uh, Scott, do you think Weaver, do you think Weaver is trying to be funnier? Do you think Weaver's I, trying to I lighten up? I think she is a little bit. I think she's trying. I just don't think she's very good at it. <laughs> I think I would have laughed if I were there. I mean... <laughs> I, I think the problem here is is Taylor and I think we'll see this when she when she talks with Glenn but the problem is that Taylor is just seemingly still kind of unaware of of how generally like scared of her most of the other people are because of like how unpredictable she is and so like she does these moments of humor and people are like don't know what yeah. to do <laughs> like okay, like I mean yeah it's very clear that she was joking here. Prefab even knows that she was joking, but still feels the need to, to say out loud. Seriously, though, don't don't smother anyone. Right. I mean, like the, probably the thing at the tip of his mind right now is that this person smothered Alexandria to death. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if everyone knows. Yeah, that, what that's a good point. Exactly. Like, they, they, they know she was involved, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good point. If like they obviously to the public, they did not reveal the full extent of that but i wonder if internally they they did probably not yeah i mean they probably i would imagine a lot of capes know her weakness but who knows yeah so dragon's craft uh is on the roof and weaver scouts the area with her bugs uh quickly detecting somebody with a sniper rifle on a roof nearby and the heroes put up a defensive force field and the man with the rifle glasses and dress shirt uh escapes by evading her bugs perfectly and and running through a, a, a trap door yeah that that guy really had their number man <laughs> wonder who that was 
I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. Yeah, I don't either. So they bring Pretender up into the dragon ship with a box, uh, in a box rather, and then they all take off. Uh, and the conversation on board the ship turns to Weaver's history as the killer of their former mentor um, and as somebody who has perverted justice. Yeah, and like she's explaining exactly why she asked Taylor to be here about that perversion of justice, but she gets interrupted, and I really wanted to hear what she had to say. Yes, I I had exactly that same thought, actually, that, that I wanted to hear the rest of what they were talking about, and then I was like, do they do they get back to having this conversation later? I don't remember. No. Nope. Um, yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, the ship takes a hit from what turns out to be a small human. It's Bambina, and Bambina gradually knocks the ship out of the sky uh, with her with her body and then rhyme helps cushion the impact of the of the crash with her ice and as someone who has fallen down many times while ice skating i can confidently say that ice is not very cushioning matt no i've uh i don't think my tailbone has ever appreciated the <laughs> soft soft ice so um, soft yeah uh a few of the heroes are slightly injured in, in the in the crash and the craft is is pretty much trashed Weaver gets the monitors working to show what's going on outside, and Bambina lands with two other kid capes before they can extricate themselves. Number Man has Rhyme pinned down outside under sniper fire, and Weaver infers from the situation that Number Man and the three kid capes aren't on the same side. Wait, that was Number Man? What? (laughs) I mean, the guy with the sniper rifle. (laughs) Weaver is finally happy that she doesn't have to convince her teammates not to hurt civilians. Oh, what a wonderful beat, right? Yeah. Like, it's so minor and, and quickly passing, but, like, we've we've seen now that, that being a ward has its difficulties that Taylor wasn't expecting, but we're also seeing areas where, like, it's easier for her as well. Like, she doesn't have to have this whole moral debate with, with Regent about, like, no, we need to help these people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really um, completely different um, profile for her character, yeah. So Bambina approaches and she is upset that Weaver has ruined her ratings by killing <laughs> Alexandria. Um, and, and it turns out that uh, August Prince is one of the other capes and he has a stranger power. He can't be attacked. It's pretty freaking useful. Yeah, I, I like how I like how that evolves. Rhyme gets shot um, by Numberman and August Prince gets his hands around Weaver's neck um, and, and Weaver uses complicated things involving spider silk to not be killed here contessa meanwhile while everyone is fighting and and being completely ineffective uses the standard cauldron doorways to teleport right into the ship and grab pretender and uh get away scot-free so that the vegas capes arrive but they hold back when they see uh they hold back at first when it seems like bambina's team are going to win um, and that makes it clear that they hired Bambina to break Pretender out. And then we fully learn that Pretender was being taken out of command because he was found to be a cauldron cape. Um, and then the Vegas team basically just leaves the Protectorate like en masse pretty much because they've, you know, first of all, they've exposed themselves as basically being traitors. Um, but also like they, they weren't that, they're, I guess it kind of seems like they're more loyal to, to each other than they are to um, to the Protectorate. Yeah, and they point. see the, the writing on the wall and the protector a little bit, but it's failing. Yeah, yeah. And so so basically what all this amounts to is basically total and complete defeat. Uh, people get hurt. I think they capture Bambina and her, her two people, but that's it. 
Um, the, the guy that they were supposed to be transporting got away. They lost a huge chunk of protectorate members. And this got me thinking, Matt, like, when's the last time Taylor just flat out lost a fight? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I couldn't think of any time that I, I think the closest that I can come to is um, uh, when um, when um, Purity and, and, and Night in Fog kind of had them where they could have just killed all of them and, and Tattletale instead um, figured out how to, to tell it to, to tell Purity where her um, where her kid was. Yeah, but, but that's that, still that, kind of a win, right? Yeah, it's still kind of a, like they didn't really lose anything. They 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 almost they almost what almost happened was really bad, but then they just got out scot free. They didn't lose they didn't lose any resources really. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I take your point here. Yeah, like even even the closest one I could come up with was when they fought Bakuda the first time, and they didn't really lose. I mean, they didn't win, but she still chopped off Bakuda's toes. And yeah. forced her to run away. So, right. Like, yeah. I don't think she's ever been in the situation where they were just like complete defeat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's like every other fight. There's there, there's been some give and take, but there's 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 always something, right? But here they they didn't win anything at all. They the, yeah. the only win they had was that nobody died, I guess. And I, I guess you could argue that when you're a villain, like losing is death. So yeah. like you literally like you don't there's not even an option like you it's it's win or die. Um, so she she's not she th- th- I think the point here is that she's just not used to losing and she doesn't handle it very well yeah. at all. Um, and there's a, there's that specific moment in the middle of the fight where she she specifically tells Rhyme like let me take the kid gloves off like I can take out the sniper I can do this let me go and Rhyme says no and she says that line that she says many times throughout this book you're underestimating me. And that's like, every time she says that line, she's usually does something like really crazy. Yeah. Um, I think that she said that to lung before she ripped his eyes out. Yeah. Um, and of course she doesn't hear, but like she leaves this battle, like insanely mad and frustrated and feeling like I could have won this for us if you would have let me. And like Rhyme says something that I don't think Taylor picks up on here in the moment, but we'll learn more about in this conversation with Glenn. Rhyme says like, no, by stopping you, by not letting you take those kid gloves off, I am doing you a favor. You don't understand. Right. And and that's what we get into next chapter. Right. Because the the problem is clearly not that she's being underestimated. That's that's not it at all. It's it's what, yeah, it's what we're about to find out because 23.3 begins and Taylor basically storms down to meet with Glenn. Um, and as she she comes in on his his studio, she examines his particular way of holding power, his his leadership style, which is based around some form of charisma. Um, and and he's kind of like surrounded by these interns that are that he kind of has in his orbit. And unexpectedly, she compares him to Skidmark um, in terms of kind of the the idea of having like a retinue that he that he keeps charmed with his kind of bizarre kind of charm and then she admits that comparing him to Skidmark might be kind of a negatively biased comparison yeah no shit um it, it is it is really a very clever and great way to show her real disdain for for glenn and as she approaches this conversation like we we already said she comes to this meeting really frustrated but this entire section where she's examining how he holds his power is basically just her finding like ways to mentally ridicule him. Like the idea to her of leading through charisma is such a foreign concept. 
and she sees anyone and everyone that would be swayed by that sort of power leadership method as weak-willed and sheepish, um, which is kind of crazy. I'm wondering how you feel about that. Is, is she right at all? I mean, she points out that these are like kids fresh out of college that are hoping to use him to launch their career. Um, what, what do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's terribly fair. I mean, in in any in any like le- leader to subordinate relationship, there's there's a large variety of of reasons why that 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 a relationship exists, and I don't, like it's certainly not any more like laudable to rule by fear than it is to rule by yeah uh, by the kinds of of manipulativeness that are required to be a charismatic leader and and i say manipulativeness like that's i i think of there's a certain ethos i like that like leadership is manipulation and you shouldn't think of that as a bad thing it's you're you're trying to manipulate people into doing what needs to be done and uh yeah there's i think she's i think she's being unfair to glenn scott yeah, I think so, too. And I think, you know, some of our best, like, political leaders have led through charisma, have yeah. have 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 gotten power and led people because uh, people liked them. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, she's uh, she she's challenging Lynn. She challenges the, res- the restrictions on her power that, that he's placed on her um, on, on not not being able to use her more useful bugs. Uh, but uh, like the whole the whole attitude basically of fighting of uh, forcing the wards to fight in in this camera friendly way is really what she's mad about. It's not just about the the ladybugs and the butterflies, it's about like hey, you're you're handcuffing the wards entirely and, and you're making us less effective as a as a unit. Um and that's her problem and this is kind of her hearkening back to her like we need a new a new prt and a new protectorate thing and i think that she thinks one of the thing one of the features of the new of the new protectorate is going to be that the gloves are taken off um and she's being pretty aggressive with him here and and they kind of spar over over (laughs) the over this issue and also taylor's sense of of discretion or, or lack thereof because she brings up a lot of these things in front of his uh his retinue which she she knows she shouldn't do but she's doing it basically to to make a play on him yeah there's a really great response he has to this whole thing though um i I appreciate glenn as a character very much um because here he basically says this is a really complicated issue something you could study for six years in college but you figured it out after two brawls the rumors of your intelligence must be true after all (laughs) and it's like like Taylor is smart. She's very intelligent. She is very resourceful. She figures things out very quickly. But her confidence in that intelligence is almost like overbearing sometimes. Like she's convinced that she has this complete grasp on the situation and the solution to it after two weeks in the wards. Um, I, Glenn, I think, uses the phrase, you're a dog in a duck pond, and it's pretty perfect. Like she knows what it takes to lead a group of villains, but this isn't the same thing. And it, and it doesn't have the same restrictions. It doesn't have the same rules. It doesn't have the same goals and it doesn't have the same big picture. So she can't like, she's trying to take everything she learned as a villain and just drop it into this new situation and assume that it's all going to work the same way. And it's just not. Yeah. This is really good because again, we have this 16 year old protagonist who was very successful in what she was doing and, thought she knew better than everyone and it actually carried her a long way but like 
the fact that she has this vision for the PRT, like like it would have been kind of disappoint disappointing story wise if <coughs> if Taylor had been like this is this is my vision for the PRT, and then every all of these adults with years of experience were like, "You're right, that is a better idea." You know, like like right. it's clearly a bit naive in various ways, and, and like you said, it's because she doesn't grasp this big picture. Yeah, you need your character to be wrong sometimes. I mean, you need them to just to like. I mean, it's the whole Mary Sueism that we've talked about before on this, which is why I still don't understand why some people consider her that. Like she, I think is is wrong here, or 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 maybe it's not wrong. It's just she doesn't understand the full the full picture. Yeah, right. She's just missing the the information and the perspective. Yeah, she's naive. Yeah. So Glenn admits that forcing her to use the the butterflies. Uh, even went up against Contessa and the number man uh, was a way of testing her uh, because they, they being the protectorate and everyone really view her as somebody who is unquestionably strong and, and able to help, but liable to snap. And he calls her out on breaking the rules that he set using the singing insects on Bambina. Yeah. And he's right. And it's so it's, it's actually very smart because it's very easy to follow the rules when things are going well. Um, it gets harder to follow the rules when you're up in a tough situation. So th- that's the perfect place where did you follow the rules or not? And and she didn't. Um, she has been trying. We've already talked about how she's been trying to be this new person, but she's still continuing to like cleverly skirt around orders, like with the warden who tells her not to use her power in the prison. Well, she she sends most of her bugs to the zapper, but she's also secretly hoarding and, and breeding spiders um, with the uh, adepts she was using uh the butterflies but they were just masking the other insects she was using and now in vegas she does the same thing as well um matt doesn't taylor know that when you start a new job you're supposed to like follow the letter of the law for the first few weeks until you figure out what rules you can break like <laughs> come on you gotta you gotta wait a little bit yeah i know i mean it, it it does look it does look really bad i mean she hasn't snapped um but this is just as bad in its own way where she's she's just not really playing the game. She's not showing that humility that she she kind of wants to 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 show. She wants to portray, she wants to actually have on some level, but it's so contrary to her nature that she keeps slipping. Yeah, and you you can imagine the the the, the PRT when they're viewing this stuff, every time they see her like go to rhyme and like, come on, let me take my kid's glove off, they're like, Oh shit, here we go. Here's when she's going to snap. Like, they're just like, they're just not sure. And I, and again, she doesn't fully, I don't think she fully realizes like, like the, she, the, the weight of the things that she's done and how it, it colors their perception of her. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that that's true. So yeah. Um, when she continues to push to be put to proper use, he shows her a video feed of herself attacking the Brockton Bay PRT. And she watches her movements and she's surprised because she sees herself employing combat tactics that she doesn't remember using. Her swarm does things she doesn't remember telling it to do. This is actually a moment I've been looking forward to uh, because we've hit this beat of Taylor getting a glimpse of how she actually appears to other people many times in many different contexts. And here, in this moment, when she actually seems to have acquired some, some perspective on herself... Um, she gets a literal perspective on herself in the form of this video and she's very alarmed by what she sees. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. This is such a great moment. And, and I think I'd go further alarmed. She's kind of terrified by it. Um, and, and I wanted to point out here 
the way the prose is written, um, because I think it's very clever what Wildbird does here. And I don't even know if he did it intentionally, but it, it's clever enough where I think he does it intentionally. Because as Taylor um, is observing the movements of the recording, the, the prose shifts from I did this, I did that, to she did this, she did that. Um, as, as she makes this move that Taylor doesn't recognize, the prose makes that shift. So it's, it's almost as if like we're specifically drawing out the otherness of this. And it's, it's something that like, I think if you're reading through this quickly, you might not catch, but I think your brain does. I think your brain like notices that subtle shift and it kind of otherizes the situation that it wasn't Taylor doing this. It was Skitter. It was, it was her. Um, and I think that's a really brilliant way of, of painting this whole video yeah like the the actual sleight of hand of the language is great because within the same sentence she refers to the person in the video as me and then the skitter in the video and 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 then it's the that the skitter and and i think that's yeah that's really interesting because it's yeah you're she's the, the, it's a third party it's not her yeah that, that's wonderful mm-hmm. yeah and i think i think the thing we have to talk about in this moment, though, is when Glenn says, if you told me that this girl was a member of the Slaughterhouse Nine, I wouldn't have batted an eyelash. And that's like a big deal because yeah. we've seen like the Slaughterhouse Nine are literal monsters. Yeah, right. And and that's, you know, it's, it speaks to to his sense of of like the uh, appearances and, and the PR aspect of things, because like it's completely true because she she didn't do any you know this, we've seen the slaughterhouse nine do horrible things we don't see her do anything horrible in that image it it's just he's commenting on the like aura of her and that's what he wants to work on yeah and it's interesting here because like they're both they both look at this video and they both get afraid but they're for kind of different reasons glenn is is focused on pr so he's into that taylor's worried because she doesn't remember doing this. She doesn't remember teaching herself this. Something happened that she did that she doesn't remember. And yeah. she feels like she's losing control of herself. Um, this is a big moment for her. I mean, this is a moment of real introspection for her. And and I think this changes things for her a little bit. And I think we're going to see this kind of ripple out throughout the rest of these chapters. But this is a big deal. Yeah, I like that this wasn't just a throwaway. Because so often we've seen Taylor realize something that makes her feel a little weirded out about herself and then she just sweeps it under the rug completely and never thinks about it again <laughs> yeah and this and this time she absolutely like she's like this needs to be addressed yeah so that, that that shows some character growth i think yeah so yeah defiant and uh chevalier arrive in the midst of their conversation and they tell her that she won't have these restrictions removed until she's 18 and joins the protectorate uh, but they do agree to let her uh, provide spider silk costumes to the to the PRT. Yeah, and I think this is uh, Chevalier here is great because he kind of comes in and like sets the record straight. He's he like he's level setting with her. He's like, look, you murdered two people, <laughs> three if you count when you admitted to murdering uh, Coil. Two of them were PRT directors. One of them was a member of the Triumvirate. Like. You don't understand. Like you are not in a position to be making demands here right now. And then she, they go on to realize to to reveal that the only reason she's even there right now is because of Glenn, the guy that she just came in to yell at. And it it's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that that's that's pretty that's pretty cool because, like you said, you already kind of like Glenn at this point, 
And, but we don't really know why he would do that. Like, why would he, why would he take that risk by suggesting that? Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think we really find out, but, um, no, it's, it's really not, interesting. Yeah. At least. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about this whole thing is, is they're, they're basically begging Taylor to just be patient. Like, like this is going to take some time. It's not going to happen over week, over a few weeks. It's not going to happen over a few months. It's going to take some time for people to get used to you in this role and get used to, to this idea. And, and you think like, why is Taylor so impatient? And then you start to look back and you think, well, she got her powers in January and then she became warlord of an entire city by June. So like in less time that it's taken us to read this book, <laughs> Taylor has taken over a city. Uh, um, feels like we've taken over a city <laughs> so like this idea that you need to be patient you need to let this play out like it, you need you need to work your way through this um is something that's really foreign to her it really is um, yeah and you and you see when she gets back to the prison she kind of decides in this moment that that i can't be the straight and narrow weaver um i can't be the villainous skitter so maybe maybe what i where i belong is in between there and i don't like I don't know how comforted I am by that that call. Yeah, right. That that does feel a bit like giving up, um, giving right. up on on what she really wanted. Um, I I think by the end of this arc, it makes us feel a little bit better seeing how she how she chooses to implement that. Um, yeah. But but it's still it's still a question mark. You know, we're not getting we're not getting a character resolution. We're getting a character development. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she, she, she's back in her, her cell and she gets a giant wad of fan mail, including letters from her team. And, and I love each and every one of these. Um, uh, you know, Gru didn't take it too well. Uh, Rachel dictates a letter that expresses loss while still <laughs> wishing Taylor well. Um, and it turns out that uh, there are three other villain groups sending feelers into the town. So Taylor feels kind of bad that her, her friends are having to deal with that without her. And also poor Atlas has died. Yeah, uh, Matt, they, they're all wonderful, all the letters. I think Imps that just says, ha, 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 what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Rachel's is, of course, my favorite, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially, like, the little comments by the person writing down the dictation. Right. It's just great. But, the, I mean, like, but yeah, right, there's there's a bunch of heart punches in, in this as well. Like, like, when Rachel says, suck somehow, but can't really understand why, maybe see you at next Angbringer fight. We both stay alive. Try hard. That's all. And it's it's really wonderful. Like, Rachel is the best. Yeah. 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 And I, I really do love that they, they we get this note that they're going to, that Charlotte tells her they're going to cast Atlas and Brass after he's dead. Um, and this got me thinking, like, as we think about Taylor's former people are creating a monument to her. And it, and it, and it makes you think about Taylor's time as a villain and and that it that it was what Brockton Bay needed from her at the time. And this this made me link back to one of the conversations we had before that the biggest problem with Taylor's whole plan is that it never had that long term portion to it. It never had that long term. How do we transition from uh, help people in short term to long term leadership and control? And I think that plays into it that 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 what Brockton Bay needed at the time was that short term that fix this, that, that beat with Charlotte from, from last interlude last week where she said, this is working for us now. That's what, that's what the city needed. That's what the city wanted. And we'll worry about tomorrow later. And I think what we're seeing now is that tomorrow has come and 
Taylor recognized on some level that not only was being a villain making her unhappy, but maybe Brockton Bay didn't need that form of her anymore. Um, and, and maybe what they needed was her as as the hero. And that's that's part of why she makes that decision. And this is all what popped in my head after I saw that they they cast a bug in brass. So yeah. that's how my brain works. Yeah, I think it's definitely fair to say that that what the city needed in the aftermath of the living tsunami is different than what it needs when when everyone's kind of got things running smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. and we saw that the wards were not equipped to protect the city. You know, that that, that was when their interlude fell, that their their arc of interludes fell, and they were they were not they were not holding it together at all. So so Taylor, I think it you know, on some level didn't need to step in and <laughs> hold things together for them until uh right until the protectorate could could get its act together and uh yeah yeah makes sense so then she's uh as she's in her cell she's sort of reconceptualizing who who she wants to be and she's redesigning her costume and she wonders scott if they'll let her have a containment foam sprayer i am vindicated i am vindicated <laughs> forever taylor is on team foamed it was yeah it was really funny to me that the the protagonist is like why can't i have a foam sprayer <laughs> which is which is what I, you said i agree taylor why can't you have a containment foam sprayer that's so good let it be ever known that taylor is team scott yes yes foamed hashtag foamed so 23.4 and i don't know if if you could be uh if you could be happier actually scott because right following on <laughs> following on the containment phone reveal the big containment phone reveal of arc 23 which is really the most important part we have dr yamada coming f- for her appointment with taylor Aww. and uh she's late to her appointment yeah uh dr yamada is actually and uh she makes it clear that she takes it very seriously and she regrets being late and she's she's very apologetic um and she points out uh, relatively quickly uh, that Taylor in a very short span of time uh, number one reacted to her use of the word respect in an interesting way and also presumed that Yamada's lateness was due to bureaucracy um, but before they kind of dig into the psychotherapy she wants to talk about how Taylor's doing with everything Yamada is so good at her job Matt yeah I this was everything I love this chapter. Yeah. So Taylor admits to having been restless, which I think is the perfect word to kind of describe the mentality that we've been talking about this whole time. Um, she can't go for her runs. I think it's interesting. She ascribes it to like, oh, I can't go for my runs. That's why I'm restless when it's like actually you're restless because you don't get to indulge in violence all the time. But <laughs> but okay. No, it's just the jogging. Yeah, right. Um, she feels like she's helping people less than she was. Um, and that's that's true. That is another cause of her restlessness. Um, and she describes, uh, I thought this was interesting because she describes, she says, you know, this is about the very fundamentals of right and wrong. Um, and then, and then describes the very fundamentals of right and wrong as being, um, if everybody acted the way I'm acting now, would the world be better off? Which is very interesting because we never had her explicitly state her ethics. And it sounds like her ethics are very much like about un- universalizability, the idea of, of, uh, you know, you have to you have to act in a way that is that is a way that everyone could act, and I think that's interesting because it doesn't make any 
doesn't make any sense for Skidder to think that universalizability is the basis of morality because of how she behaves. <laughs> oh, what you mean the the constant echoing of everyone should just listen to what I have to say? Yeah, right. And uh, unilateral violence. Yeah, Taylor, Taylor. Yeah, and then um, <laughs> Yamada challenges her a bit on this and points out that her particular style of uh, taking care of people could be considered medieval. Yeah, and that and that harkens back to her father making much the same argument when she had this conversation with him. But Yamada is a professional and is really fucking good at this job. So um, when Skitter argues that the only people she hurt were the ones that deserved it, that committed transgressions against her and deserved harsh treatment, Yamada strikes back with, and what about the wards? Did they commit a transgression that warranted the pain they suffered at your hands? The ones that aren't Shadowstalker? <laughs> and it's like... Taylor doesn't know how to answer that. Like, she's just like, she eventually like blurts something out about like, yeah, I mean, well, they, they tolerated shadow stalker, but it's really, I like, I don't have time to get into it right now. It's like, she's basically like, I just got dunked on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty bad there. Yeah. And, and it's easy to, I'm glad that there's that moment of her mentioning that because a lot of the, a lot of the arcs, a lot, a lot of the, um, her interlude, a lot of Yamada's interlude, concerned the wards ranting about Skitter specifically. Um, yeah. So, so she knows exactly what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- then it comes around to Yamada asking, who are you? Uh, and there's that beat of the capes defining themselves by their names and Yamada using it as a tool once again. So Taylor ultimately decides that she wants to be called Weaver. Yeah, and, and I think this is this is a big deal because we've talked about this in, in the Yamada interlude herself. Um, and I don't know if we could say that Taylor is Weaver. Not yet. She, she's still wrestling with this new identity. That's a lot of what this arc is about. She's still trying to become this new person. But, but when she's asked what she wants to be labeled at, Weaver is what she wants to be. And that's definitely something that that's definitely acknowledgement that she is trying to be this new person. Yeah, right. I agree. And and not just Taylor either. Yeah. Um, so she then asks, uh, Yamada asks what she wants their relationship to be and states that there are two paths. She can be Taylor's therapist she, where she's objective. She's only there to help her. And Taylor will have full confidentiality or she can be Taylor's advocate and testify on Taylor's behalf. Taylor decides ultimately that she would rather have Yamada as a therapist. And I think this is a really, really big decision. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really important. It kind of comes and goes really fast, but it's a big deal that she chooses this because you can basically break these two options down as like, do you want to focus on your own self-care or do you want to focus on uh, ensuring your career goes as well as possible? Do you want to actually get better or do you want to be back on the streets as soon as possible? And I think I think the Taylor prior to seeing that video in the last chapter would have absolutely chosen the latter um, that she would have said, do whatever it gets me to get those kid gloves off. But now she picks the former. She's she's worried about what the stuff that she's going through means, not just as as a cape, but as like a human being, as a person. And I think that's that's a huge deal. Yeah, I, I actually think this is one of the biggest or if not the biggest moment of character growth in this whole arc, because the the Taylor we know would, uh, I really think, you know, nine times out of 10 would 
choose the the um, you know more kind of like how we were comparing her to Defiant earlier. She would choose the more like mission oriented option, like like okay, well, whatever whatever accomplishes the mission most effectively, that's that's the one. And the mission is, uh, you know, remake the Protectorate, become a hero, save everybody. Um, and and what I need to do in order to do that, what I need to do is I need to I need a, I need an advocate. And like you said, she here she's saying, you know what, I'm I may not actually be okay. Yeah. And uh that's a big admission for miscompartmentalization. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since like Taylor has always believed that if she could just sit down and talk to someone and explain her line of thinking, that they would completely understand her and support what she wants to do. Like she's always believed that. It's like yeah. if you just let me explain, if you just let me talk you through why I'm doing the things I'm doing it will make sense. So to to kind of not want that here, you're right, is is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So Taylor then admits to being anxious about the fact that she felt like she was more effective as a villain and she doesn't know if she can be a good hero. Um, and, uh, and I think that's just some classic imposter syndrome, which is absolutely ubiquitous and, and completely expected that she would have that here. And she's also afraid about the lack of control that she perceives surrounding her passenger, like you said, especially after that video she just saw. Yeah, and I love that, like, she says, yes, I want you to be my therapist. And then we see here actual honesty, actual vulnerability, actual admitting something. Um, look what y- Yamada can get out of people. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think this all, this all, of course, ties into Taylor, Taylor's frustrations, her, that restlessness we've been talking about. It was easy, or or easier for her to be a villain, um, be it because of her trauma, uh, her passenger, uh, just just how her power operates in general, or or mo- what most likely is a combination of all three of those things. And that being a hero is going to take time. It's going to be hard. And Taylor is very much not used to that. Um, to tie back to that whole Taylor becoming an adult thing that I mentioned in, in the first part of, of the arc, um, this could be compared to like a really smart kid breezing their way through high school and then suddenly they get to college and it's hard and they're not sure if they're cut out for it. And they're worried about what that says about them as a person. And here we have it here with Taylor and she, that admitting this is such a huge, huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, I think that's like you said about college, that's, that's exactly the imposter syndrome thing. And I, I think I've experienced some degree of imposter syndrome in every step of my career, you know, from, from like this, like this podcast <laughs> yeah right yeah it's it's just that's that's just how people react but because taylor is is relatively young and inexperienced to her this is an entirely new like sensation of and and she she takes it maybe more seriously than she should this feeling of of uh, inadequacy yeah yeah so ultimately yamada takes her for a walk outside and they visit a pr event where a group of a group of Boston wards are being mauled by a mob of middle schoolers, and it's time for what might be my favorite scene in the entire book, Matt. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I love this so much. It's pretty awesome. So Taylor calls up a swarm of butterflies and tells the kids to catch as many as they can. So this is a- a- adorable. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so very anti-skitter, right? Like, how often did we see Taylor use bugs to entertain as skitter? Um, I don't know if we, uh, yeah, we ever saw that. She, cause she was all about fear. She couldn't do that. She couldn't let people have fun with it. Um, 
but she doesn't have to be that way anymore. And and my favorite part through all this is is she brings the butterflies over them for the first time and the kids all kind of freaked out. And she thinks to herself, was this another point where I was us- underestimating what the effect of my swarm was? Or were the kids just overreacting? It was only five or six hundred butterflies. <laughs> Those are shitload of butterflies, Matt. Yeah. You <laughs> know, a lot of butterflies. You know, I don't, I don't know if people are going to believe that this is true, but yesterday a butterfly landed on my shirt while I was walking. Um <laughs> And, of course, it was funny that I had just read this chapter um, because it's not like butterflies land on my shirt all the time. Um, but but I had the thought when I was looking at it, I was like, well, that's kind of neat that this has happened. But also, this thing is kind of creepy, actually. I get 600 of them. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think like I don't think I've ever seen that many insects in one place at a time. So just like them being there would be overwhelming, even if it's just butterflies. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, another thing I want to point out is like she's she's out of costume, right? She's uh, yeah, that's she's true. Just 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 a, a person using using cape powers, which is really unusual in the story in general. Actually, like almost everybody we see using powers is I, I can think of like one one other instance, maybe a couple instances of, of times where where people were caught in, in a situation where they weren't in costume and they had to use their powers, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's just a really cool, like, it's, it strikes me as being cinematic in a way to have, after seeing this character in costume all the time, you finally kind of see her out of costume being this, this new person with her, with her butterfly-based powers. It's almost like a rebirth. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So what she does is she identifies the kids who aren't participating in the butterfly catching game, and she asks the other wards to round them up. And then she talks to them and she admits that the PRT wants to do this kind of thing, this kind of event, uh, so that they can form a positive impression on kids who might end up as capes and that these isolated kids are the ones who have the greatest chance of triggering. Yeah. And, and I think this is, this is where we, this is kind of where we see that, um, not hero, not villain, but something in the middle here, because she takes a very interesting approach here. One that. I don't think the heroes normally would. She's completely honest. She doesn't posture. She's not playing any games. She just kind of treats the kids like human beings um, and, and tells it like it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was impressed by this side of Taylor that we're seeing here. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because like she's saying all these things that she really shouldn't be saying in her like straight laced or her, her attempt to be straight laced, um, um, Weaver that she had sort of conceptualized before, but she's kind of reconceptualizing what she wants Weaver to be. So she's saying stuff like, "Oh, let's be fair. Being a villain is an option," and 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 stuff like saying drugs are bad. It's wrong. Drugs are fantastic. Um, so she, as she's saying this stuff, she realizes that her behavior is problematic. But for her, it's worth it to cross these lines because now she's being authentic. She's being the Weaver that she wants to be. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I think she's she does good stuff here. Like, yeah, and yeah. and and I might just be completely putting words in his mouth again, but I feel like Wild Bo is kind of working through some frustrations that he has about how we talk to children about this kind of stuff, like drug education, sexual education. We talk to kids so dishonestly sometimes about this stuff, and and Taylor recognizes that here, and and she's right. Drugs do have to be fantastic, or people wouldn't do them pretending like abstinence actually works and kids will never hook up is foolish just like pretending being a villain isn't an option is foolish it is an option it will always be an option so instead of pretending like it's not let's talk about the actual consequences of that choice not just removing it as a choice 
Yeah, I mean, I I think she probably did did good here because these kids are going to remember. Like they're they're old enough to use you know reasoning because they're middle schoolers, so yeah. the, they're going to remember that this supervillain sat down with him and and hashed this out with him and, and was very pragmatic. Whereas like if you just kind of hang out with the wards and see their cool costumes, you all you remember is like the cool costumes. You don't you, yeah. you don't take anything away from it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it goes on and Taylor has them all write down something bad that might happen to them in the near future. And then uh, the wards make up powers for them based on those as trigger events. And then the kids are given the option of whether to be heroes or villains. And uh, then based on their choice, they roll dice. And Taylor kind of rigs the rules, but in a way that she finds to be realistic based on her experience so that the villains have a really hard time staying on top. Yeah, I I love this so much. This is like really inventive and smart of her. And it, it kind of reminds me, you know, those like scared straight programs where they have the villain come in and be like, no, you're going to end up like me. Um, this reminds me of one of those, but actually like effective. Um, yeah. And I'm so kind of amazed by the perspective that Taylor has here. And, and like, I think it's only because she's now outside looking in on the whole villain thing that she's like able to have this perspective um like even even if it is like being a hero is harder for her like she recognizes that it is much safer yeah um and i and i love that part where she i like i make sure to look each of the participants in the eyes i spoke i wasn't satisfied doing what i was doing as a visit as a villain i switched sides by choice think about that even after all of that even after everything i had even though i felt pretty good spending all that money on helping people in my neighborhood being front page news i gave it up and that's like that's true that's what she did and that's so important yeah yeah she's just being honest too she's yeah. not she's not telling a, a story so yeah she asks the survivors of the weaver dice campaign um to decide on whether they're going to attend an an, an inbringer fight if they're called to and to roll on, on whether they'll survive yeah, and I love the kids kind of call her out here. It's like, no fair, you, you've rigged the game against us. And it's like, no, no, kid, life life has rigged the game against you. Yeah. <laughs> these these are the stakes. And I like here that she says, like, as she's explaining this whole thing, as she's explaining the truth about being a villain, she never says being a hero is is better. Um, I still don't know if she believes that it's it's better. I think she she says it's safer, it's smarter. Um, and I think that she's still like in this weird in between between the two. So I, I don't think it would have been fully realistic for her to say, oh, it's definitely better to be a hero, but it is safer. It is smarter. And I think that's that's important. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. She's not she's not overselling it. She's really just being as like honest as she can. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then in the midst of this, everybody's phones ring and they get the word that it's behemoth in New Delhi. And uh, Taylor thinks of the Undersiders, and she knows that she has to go, too. Yeah, what, what a terribly timed Endbringer, right? In the middle of where they just showed that everyone has a one in four chance of dying. Yeah. In the midst of this, everyone's phone rings. Yeah. So it's fresh on their their minds. Right. I mean, that's a great, that's really great dramatic timing. I, I love it. It really is. Yeah. And you can feel, you can feel the, the, the emotion in the scene sink. Like, Wildbit does a great job with that, where you can, like, like, Taylor starts breathing heavily and, like, she knows what's going on and you can just feel everything just like take a nosedive from this kind of lighthearted scene where Taylor's talking to children and trying to help kids. And then everything just like 
like snaps back to the real world. Yeah. And I love this moment where they, they mention that they call him the hero killer because they had mentioned that before. And, and that's the thing is now Taylor is, is a hero. So just the, the, the ominousness of that is fantastic. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, the dragon suits land and they pick up Taylor and they bring her old costume with a new back compartment. Yeah. Matt, this is such a powerful end to a chapter here um, because we have this chapter where Taylor has the, the Yamada chapter. It's so amazing. And you feel like she had a real breakthrough. Like as, as she boards this, the, the, the plane, um, she and Yamada kind of meet eye to eye and she nods at her and, and, and Yamada nods back. And there's this moment where like, you, you, you get that they both understand that like they might never see each other again. Cause Taylor might die here. And, and she says this moment, like, it had meant something to me after all, getting a chance to do this. And that's just like such a powerful moment on the back of this terrible news that she's going to have to go risk her life. But she had a breakthrough. Like she has grown in this chapter and it's it's really great. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I like that little touch there. So yeah, we move right on into 23.5 and we're going to see even more of the world because Taylor's writing this, this, uh, this craft to New Delhi. And she's just stewing in restlessness for the whole flight. She's watching the count of the attending capes for the fight tick upward, but she doesn't really know what to do with herself. So she just kind of investigates her flight equipment and, uh, and then Defiant explains its functioning. Um, and she finds that she's able to operate the flight pack via her bugs kind of operating the switches for her. Yeah. And, and the flight stuff is really cool, but I kind of, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit more about what this means like thematically mm-hmm. because taylor's now in the situation where she's using her old armor but with new equipment she's called herself weaver but she's not quite there yet and we see her in the skitter costume with the weaver gear so she's somewhere in this in this middle ground between the two that transition has not been fully made yet and again so we have wild Bo here using clothes using costumes to say so much about a character's state without ever actually having to say it yeah, I, I agree. It's it's a it's a transition period. It's it's a it's a nascent form. Uh, so she thanks Defiant for the equipment, and he explains that tinkers don't usually make gear for other capes because of the required upkeep time, and that he's doing this specifically for her because he feels that he wronged her in the past. He owes her, and this is his way of making up for it. Yeah, and I think this is probably the scene you were thinking about when you talked about how. He kind of slips back into arms masteriness a yeah, little bit right. and then catches himself or, or gets specifically called out for it right. um, because he basically says, like, stop thanking me. Like, yeah. I'm just doing this because I wronged you. And yeah. then he's like, there's a pause like where he's obviously being lectured. And yeah. then he says, talks again. And it, it's yeah. it's really great. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he he's such an interesting character because I don't know, every time there's a character who you dislike at first. And then they kind of grow on you. That Those are always my favorite. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I listened to our first episode uh, not too long ago. And, and my um, my interpretation of him in that first arc and how different of a person I see him as now. It's 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 incredible. Yeah, he's, he's really fleshed out and he's very complex now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, t- Taylor does wonder how they were able to build this thing and create a professional looking manual for it in like two hours. Uh, but then she spends the rest of the flight just rereading the manual. 
Yeah, and Taylor's smart enough where it really makes you wonder how long it's going to take before she puts together this whole dragon is an artificial intelligence thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, it makes you wonder if, if other people have because right. cause it's like, that's that's kind of unbelievably prolific there, dragon. But uh, yeah. So as they land, Defiant mentions that they sent a craft to bring the Undersiders also, but that Taylor isn't supposed to extend the contact to them. And that uh, there are going to be cameras pointing at her, so she better behave. Yeah, so whatever you do, Taylor, don't like immediately exit the ship and fly over and say hi to the Undersiders. Yeah, exactly. So she gets out and flies across the field to the Undersiders immediately. God damn it. <laughs> I mean, you, you, I almost wonder if she like interpreted what they said as like, don't, don't extend contact to them on the battlefield. But no, I, that, that, I, don't, I don't think that's true because she... Yeah, I think she doesn't care. I read this part twice because I was like, <laughs> did she really just do that? <laughs> like, I mean, she just like leave this conversation and then immediately do the thing he told her not to do. Yeah. I yep, think, that's what happens. I think she just know like, there's just no way she wasn't going to go talk to them. Yeah. Because that would be such a snub to them. And and she just wouldn't do that because she's too, she's like barely holding it together. She's been in prison. So he needs to see her friends. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um. Accord, Citrine, and Legea are there along with the, the Undersiders, all the Undersiders, including Flechette and Parian. Um, and they, they talk about how they're all doing. And uh, it turns out that they're actually dealing with Heartbreaker's group back in the bay. Yeah, you said Flechette. It's, it's foil. Oh, Matt. Yeah, sorry. I forgot. Foil. Well, did, did you remember that you guessed that name? I did. <laughs> yeah. It was on my long list of things. Yeah. It Scott, was one of them. In a, in a private message to me, was, was just riffing on possible na- new names for, for Flechette, and one of them was Foil. I have, <laughs> I have photographic evidence. <laughs> the, the thing that's most interesting to me here, though, is that, like, Taylor's legitimately concerned with how they're doing because there's a certain amount of guilt she feels for leaving them. And Lisa is very much just like, no, we're fine. Stop worrying. Like, we're dealing with it. Just we're dealing with it. And I yeah. wonder how much truth there is to that how much is that lisa just like i know how how guilty and worried taylor is going to feel about this so i'm not going to give her any concrete information she's like we're fine we got it don't worry yeah right yeah yeah that's a good question um so that they're talking about how they're gonna perform on the battlefield and taylor says as far as i'm concerned that means they're going to do whatever works best in the moment and then tattletale says isn't isn't that how you wound up with us yeah, she just got she just got dunked on again because that's true. I mean, like yeah. that's like like and it's got to be a little confusing for the undersiders at this moment. Like, didn't you like you had this whole plan? Like they assumed that she had this big complicated plan and that's why she's doing all this. And, and to hear I'm just going to do whatever works for me <laughs> at best. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was all based on some kind of long term vision. No. Yeah, all yeah. right. Well, <laughs> So yeah, she gives before she leaves. She gives them each a heartfelt expression of her affection for them, calling them her family, and uh, she smiles actually, which is a rare, rare thing for Taylor as they yeah. banter, especially as as Regent kind of. She really, I mean, she really loves these guys. Yeah, she really does. Yeah, but then in the end, um, kind of on a sour note, she worries that having killed Al- Alexandria will cost them. And I think this is interesting because I, the first time I read this, I read it as. It will cost them because everyone will be mad at them and and like won't support them in the fight against Behemoth. And then I realized like maybe that's not what she meant. Maybe what she just meant was the fact that Alexandria won't be present in this fight will cost the you know 
humanity. Um, yeah, that's what I took it as. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it could legitimately be taken either way, but but uh, yeah, I, I think I, mean, the, I think the latter realistically, is how she I th- meant it. Yeah, I mean, realistically, I think it is a combination of both. I think that like, first of all, they're not going to have Alexandria here, so humanity could suffer. And second of all, the aftermath of that is everyone's going to be thinking, well, what would this battle have been like if we had Alexandria here? Yeah. And they're going to look to the person who is publicly responsible for that. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and then she thanks them for the letters. She th- thanks them for uh, <laughs> all of the letters meant a lot to me, except imps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so good. Um, she tells Rachel that she wants to hang out again someday. And uh, after all of this, Regent being trope aware, he keeps yelling at her for saying things like these for, you know, for being uh, too, uh, too, uh, what's the word? I'm going to say ominous again. Yeah. Regent knows he's in a book and continues to be excellent about it. Yeah. Um, uh, th- there is a lot of implied goodbyes in this speech, though. I think everyone is fully aware of the stakes. And I'm I'm kind of on Team Region in the moment. I think with all these these implied goodbyes, I, I'm I'm thinking an undersider's gonna die in this one. Um and which one you'll have to wait till the end of the episode to hear that. But All right. Tune in for my speculations. Okay. So she heads back to her own ship and watches the behemoth battle begin on the monitors as they fly closer. Dragon can talk a little bit now. Uh for now it's mostly the dragon ships, the uh the the, the suits rather, the the independent suits that are attacking him and uh behemoth chases down several capes several i think they're indian heroes killing them with his kill aura and lightning oh hero killer i I get it now (laughs) so dragon attaches a small uh camera to weaver and gives her a radiation pill defiant then goes on to describe the cape system of india there are hot and cold capes the hot capes are mostly about appearance flash um, regardless of hero and villain, they're they're kind of like the ones that everyone pays attention to. Um, you get the sense that it's mostly for show and it's not really that impressive. The cold capes are about violence. So far, um, it's just the hot capes that have appeared in the battle, but Defiant thinks they'll need the cold capes, the Tanda, uh, with their killer instinct to win this fight. So Matt, how fucking cool is this idea? Like, again, this goes back to our really limited in our scope of the world that we've only really seen Brockton Bay and now we're in India and we see that their like their cape structural system is totally different from ours. And it's this fun little twist on this whole thing that, I mean, I think like, I don't even know if someone else writing the story would have thought of that. They'd, they would have just defined it in this one simple way and not done these little twists on it in, in other regions of the world. Yeah. It really betrays a huge amount of, of thought because like I, I was, I was thinking this through and I was like, I think, this makes perfect sense because like you, if you don't have the cops and robbers equilibrium, there's going to be some kind of equilibrium. And another possible equilibrium is, is, is this one where there's, there's like an underworld and an overworld and, and the underworld is not playing by the rules of the cops and robbers game at all. Um, they're just completely killing each other basically all the time and and then the the over you know the the visible side is um is all about making it seem like things aren't as bad as they are um and i think that's that's really interesting because it serves a lot of the same functions as the cops and robbers does in in the united states in this in this world um while being completely different yeah absolutely yeah and then as if it weren't 
enough of seeing cool other cultures and how they interpret parahuman powers, the Yangban shows up. Um, and this is the Chinese military cape team, which we've seen a glimpse of from Lung's perspective in the last interlude. They were, I, I think, uh, maybe we've heard of them before then, but that, that, that was definitely the first time we saw any of them. Yeah. And, and they're not supposed to be here. Uh, the Yangban almost never leave China. Uh, we see how they work, though. They coordinate to share powers, and they use a very interesting time reversal power to cover several members who would have died. Man, those people were sure on the road to perdition. Mm-hmm. I think we'll <laughs> hold off on talking about these guys uh, yeah. until the next There's chapter. plenty of opportunity. Whole, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, she watches several dragon suits continue to fight Behemoth as the ships approach. Dragon says that they didn't manage to evacuate most people, so that's uh, that's bad. Chevalier says uh, that they expect a record number of capes to show up. And Chevalier's speech uh, to all the heroes is, is I think it's an interesting contrast, actually, to Legends previously. Um, one specific remark being that he doesn't talk about the death percentage. Yeah, uh, this is a wonderful speech, and I got a little choked up reading it, honestly. Um, I like Legend a lot, and I thought his speech was very good, but this is good on a very different level. You can see the, the difference between these kind of characters. Like, the line where he says, you're the biggest damn heroes I've worked with is, like, awesome. Like, like it's so great. Yeah, I think Chevalier, like, like this speech in particular makes you see him as, like, like, the content of the speech is the same as Legend's speech, but it's it just feels a lot more authentic coming from Chevalier. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas legend always seemed to be like all about that, like presence and, and the facade of like the hero. Um, yeah, he, yeah, he's much he's much more seeming like the kind of general that would like be down in the dirt with his troops and like the the president speech from Independence Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <Kind of thing. laughs> I know um, what you mean. I sure hope nothing bad happens to him. Yeah. Oh, in the chapter. Yeah. Really quickly. Yeah. So Taylor wants to meet up with the Undersiders, but Dragon and Defiant encourage her to go to the Chicago wards because they actually want her. So she goes over there and Tecton tells her that she'll actually be team leader for this fight because she has more experience. Um, they have some new members that she doesn't remember from the Echidna fight. Uh, Cuff, Annex, and Golem are, are standing there. Her first order is that they'll be supplementing and supporting the Undersiders, which is exactly what she was just told not to do. <laughs> I like that in the middle of all this stuff, Taylor still takes time to make fun of Golem's name yeah. by saying, like, the Lord of the Rings guy. Yeah. Um, it's really wonderful. Uh, I I know, like, she does, like, choose immediately to go against her orders, but I still think the idea that, like, Dragon and Defiant basically tell her, like, the Chicago Wards want you. Go with them. But you can do whatever you want here. I mean, this is... Like, this is an Endbringer battle. Like, we are not, like, we are not controlling you here. You can do what you want. And she chooses to go with the Chicago Ward still. But yes, she does have them support the Undersiders. But I think this is an important one. I think choosing the wards there was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's you know, she, she can do whatever she wants, but she knows that whatever she does is going to reflect on her later. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's that's kind of how we wrap up with Taylor this time. She's, she's heading off with those Chicago awards. Um, and then we move on to the interlude 23 X with young bound member number 36 
Cody um, as he uses the 42 other powers shared amongst the young man, now 41 after one of them got splattered, to defend against the strike from Behemoth. Fucking Cody. Oh, wait, that's I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself yeah, here. Yeah. Sorry. You haven't fully formed that, uh, that sense yet. So his thoughts are occupied generally throughout the whole interlude, actually, by how he's being brainwashed into what is basically a cult. And he's actually a really bad cult member. So his life is just pure social suffering, which is the worst kind of suffering. Um, his Chinese pronunciation is really bad, like mine, I guess. Uh, and so he's continually subtly shunned and shunned further when he speaks English to the small group of English-speaking Yangban members. Um, but because of the crushing pressure and physical exhaustion, he still craves acceptance by this group, even being aware of what's happening to him. Yeah, that's such a tragic story. Like, this poor kid. Like, I know Cody's a jerk, and by the end of this chapter, we're all going to hate him. But his story is is really a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all of the, yeah, we're, we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves, but, but all of the travelers are victims of the Seamurg. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to forget that because of the yeah. horrible things they do. But, um, and that's another whole discussion about like responsibility and so forth. But yeah, yeah. yeah. It's easy, really easy to hate Cody here though. <laughs> it, it very much is. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a little bit more detail on the young bond we get from his perspective. The core members are the ones um, who allow the sharing of powers. So there's there's one that uh, there, there's you know null who allows the sharing of powers, and then there's another one who allows proximity power amplification. So that's why they're all able to use their powers at uh, like one third of the original strength of of each of the original powers. So it's basically like having forty one powers, each of which is one third as strong as a normal power. So it's still freaking powerful. Yeah, yeah. I love this idea a lot. I think it's very clever. It's super interesting. And if you like read into it, if you look at these, these are the the Chinese military capes. It very much sounds like something that a uh, a communist nation would want to do. That this idea that the group as a whole, the collective, is more powerful than the individual. It's very it's very fitting for uh, this nation. Yeah, you can imagine this being kind of a priority for the Chinese government, especially especially back in the 80s when the powers first came about um, and, and and they were even more gung-ho on the whole communism thing. Yeah, yeah. I think modern-day China in our world has, has very much become like a, a transitive-type communist-slash-capitalist nation. But yeah, yeah back, back then, they were very much more, yeah. more that way. It, it would be important to uh, at least signal some loyalty to these ideas and, and having yeah. a cape team like this would be one way of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the group moves across the terrain using their suite of powers to navigate it. They defend against a magma attack using once again, a number of different powers and, and in, in great like concert they they work really well together because they drill a lot. And he thinks about number 32, a female foreigner who is special to him after escaping that attack and running into behemoth again, 32 translates something one of the others said uh, that the current danger is radiation. And, and we see her get shunned a little, a little bit for, for sticking her neck out like this. Um, yeah. Th- <laughs> then they run across the Undersiders. Uh, and uh, they, they didn't know they were there because uh, Gru's darkness apparently blocked them from the, the danger sense. <laughs> Matt, are we 
supposed to know without spoiling things for me are we supposed to know who number 32 is or is that Um, supposed to be just a complete mystery at this point yeah i don't think we're supposed to know who that is okay yeah um and the the, the Levere kids enjoy the power amplification that they're getting from being near the young man but (laughs) cody is distracted by citrine's costume and he he either recognizes the costume or he recognizes kind of the general theme that comes about from all of Accords costumes, um, the the anger of it like stirs him right out of his brainwashing, and it brings out his true Cody nature. Yep, and suddenly the Cody we know and love in quotes uh, <laughs> is back because he says every step of the way I get fucked, fucked by Kraus, fucked by the Seamerg, fucked by Noel, fucked by Accord, fucked by the fucking Yangban. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the Cody we know. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a fantastic, I mean, they're all fantastic, but, <laughs> but like, I, I love this idea of, cause, cause you're so, you're in his head so well and you really get what it, like, like you get where he is mentally, where he's just, he, he knows that he's being, he knows that he's a brainwashed cult member, but he can't not be like that he he's he's too he's due too deep into it. He's too worn down. And then this thing happens where he's just like. He 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 sees a thing that makes him so angry and stirs up all those old feelings that just like snaps him back into like the person he really is, and that's that's enough to to just kind of bump him right out of that groove. And I think that's yeah. it comes across perfectly. And I think that's very true to life with actual brainwashing and cults. Like I've watched so many of those documentaries on Scientology and. And how that stuff works. And and on some level, these guys talk about how they were aware. They knew that some of this stuff was weird and wrong. But they were terrified of of not being accepted as part of that group. Yeah. Yeah. In, in their case specifically, it was it's like they, they have nothing else outside of the group anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so he, he does continue to head off with, with the young man. He doesn't abandon them on the spot. But the anger stays with him and just kind of boils the the group moves through the burning city full of fleeing people and they find some wounded capes which they basically kidnap using a teleportation power yeah so so just in case we didn't already not like these guys for their culty um like buying people and and torturing them with constant drills and stuff uh, they're just kidnapping people yeah kidnapping basically people who were injured fighting behemoth and trying to defend people yep good job guys it's pretty fucked up yeah so the group heads to the staging ground for the hero's defense, and we see all of the people we're familiar with. So 32 translates for 3, who presumably is kind of a high-ranking member, offering the Cape's present uh, membership in the Yangban. Chevalier refuses on behalf of the hero's present, knowing that the Yangban are probably going to kidnap anybody who volunteers. Yeah, that's a good call, buddy. Um, you, you kind of feel bad for Chevalier here. Like, it's, being a leader is really hard. Because he knows he can't be like just flat out mean to these guys because they desperately need their help here, but he also like can't say yes because they're a cult that kidnaps and abuses people. So he's got to si- find a way to say no, but like gently. Right. And it's like a really, it's like a really dangerous line to walk on. I think he does a good job. Yeah, yeah, he he does do a good job. But even so, uh, they're like, okay, we'll wait. But then they end up leaving anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh. Cody sees Accord with Tattletail, although he doesn't know who Tattletail is. 
Um, but he, he, you know, kind of makes a mental note of her because of how she reacts to him, because clearly she sees him and she kind of probably knows what's going on because it's Tattletail. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's so mad at this point. Like he, he really would just like immediately kill Accord if he could, if he thought, you know, he could actually successfully kill him. Um, so he needs an opportunity. Um, he, he thinks to himself, he'd even be willing to help Behemoth if that would kill his enemies, <laughs> like uh, like a cord or trickster. Um, oh, Seymour. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so as the young man join the fight with Behemoth, he escapes, teleporting back to the command center. He uses various powers to disable and defeat Chevalier. Um, and then it, his own power is actually the one that makes the biggest difference. Fucking Cody. Yep. Uh, he cuts off Accord's limbs, making him asymmetrical. Okay, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't give him any satisfaction, though. He asks Tattletail where Trickster is, and she lies and says that he was killed by Noel, um, or killed by the clones, rather. Same thing, really. Um, but this this doesn't satisfy him either, which is interesting because it kind of forces you to go into Tattletail's head and realize that she kind of, she, she's doing that thing where she knows some information via her power about who this guy yeah. is, but not enough to really push his buttons correctly. Um, cause she's kind of just button mashing, if you will. And, and it's not really working. Um, so he, he decides that he'll be killing Tattletail too, assuming she works for a cord and she, def- <laughs> she, she tries to make a lot of excuses. And then finally she desperately asks, what about her? Um, which causes him <laughs> to think about both Noel and, and 32 um and i i I love this because she's basically admits that she's just like well i figure there's a probably a girl and i had a 50 50 (laughs) yeah i mean she's just like just like throwing shit out there yeah right um and his reaction to that moment is actually kind of like terrifyingly um cold you know he's just yeah like, yeah hate. well and it's 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 i mean obviously this is all the seamark and we yeah. see this pretty explicitly in, in the next part you're going to talk about yeah. but it's interesting that he goes he goes 32 first and then he goes to noel and then the her that tattletale is talking about in his head becomes the seamark yeah yeah right because because he it says he shook his head trying to clear the ringing in his ears when had that started with the shock waves during the fight with chevalier or before all that before the young man had it ever stopped? <laughs> I that's such a great moment. Yeah. It, it really is. Yeah, I, I nothing else to say about it other than like, oh my god, you know, that's, yeah. that's so cool. Um, like, like I mean, and it's so like, it's been so like, we have we have the entire travelers arc, we have everything they went through, and then we have it all culminating in this echidna battle. And you're like, okay, that's it. That's the Seamurk's endgame. That that was her plan to lead this to this moment where we have this giant battle that you forget about Cody, that you forget about this stuff. And it's been just long enough. We've seen Taylor go through all this other stuff that we've forgotten about it too. And it's like, nope, here it is. Here's here's one of the long swooping endgames of the Seamurk. And it's just fantastic. Yeah, right. And in this moment, he realizes that he is a pawn of not only the Seamurg, but pretty much everybody who he's bumped into since then. Yep. And it makes him even angrier. So he crushes Tattletail's windpipe with his enhanced strength. And she starts to give herself a tracheotomy with a pen. Um, but he takes the pen case away and crushes it. Um, and, and he, I just had to pull this out where he's, he's, he's watching her kind of like a psychopath. 
and and remarks on the paradoxical paradoxical grin in contrast to the slam of her fist on the floor um and i had to pick that out because that's like such a tattletale thing where i know like the the slam of the fist is like her actual desperation and and fear and the grin is is her like bravado and and false confidence that she's trying to project even when her freaking wind windpipe is, is yeah crushed. i mean she's she's literally suffocating to death right now yeah. and she still has that grit on her face yeah it's it's uh I, I think we we talked about this earlier a little bit how like like this scene works because you know tattletale so well um yeah it works very differently than it would if you didn't know her well yeah and it's like this i mean this like code like we, we we're in cody's head and Cody's a very different character from anyone else we've ever seen before. But also we like go through two versions of Cody because the, 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 even the writing style at the beginning of this chapter is different from the end because you're right. He, he kind of jolts out of this cult, uh, hypnosis almost and, and becomes his old person. And then the style of writing changes to match, match that. But there's like, there's this real, like, this is Tattletale dying. This is one of our main characters dying. And it's it's so at arm's length because Cody doesn't know her and we're in his head. And it's such an interesting, exciting way of doing it because you and I are like, holy shit, holy shit. But like everything you're reading is just like, and then she um, grabbed a pen and stuck it into her neck. Yeah. And it's like, it's so casual and distant. It's so good. Right. Like, I imagine, you know, uh, cinematically, like, him just watching with, like, a completely blank expression as she as he tries to get the pen. And then just, like, again with a blank expression, like, taking it from her. Um, I don't know if that's how most people view it. Like, but, like, he's he's so broken at this point that... Because you remember, this was was just, like, this high school kid who, who was playing video games. And then he fell through a portal. And now he's now yeah. he, now now he just for you know just is just killing people wantonly um, with lasers out of his hands. <laughs> he's just completely lost. Um, yeah, yeah. But at the very it's, it's, yeah, it's very easy to hate Cody. It, it is very easy to hate Cody. He is not a good person. He's not a good guy. But yeah, I don't think you cannot have sympathy for him either because yeah. he's just went through this this crazy ordeal that no one no one is equipped to handle. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so he decides though at, at the at the end that he's gonna save thirty two. That that's that's who that's who the her is gonna be. Uh, <laughs> so he he uses his power to fix the pen case, um, not even really paying attention apparently. And then he gives it back to Tattletail and leaves. And we we just get the note before the, the before this arc ends. The Tattletail kind of successfully uses it to save her own life. Um, yeah, but we're not sure about the other two. Yeah. And that's the end. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. All right. So yeah, we got some name game. This isn't even going to be all the names actually, uh, but but we got a bunch. We got we've got Rhyme, who we've met before, but I don't, I don't think we talked about her. Um, I knew I knew it had to do with ice, but apparently, what it actually is specifically is it's the frost formed on cold objects by the rapid freezing of water vapor in cloud or fog. Yeah, if anyone plays like online RPGs. Anytime you have a character who uses ice stuff, they usually use the word rhyme. I think just because they go through with thesaurus and like yeah. type like ice and find all the words that are icy. Um, I think, so I, I think it's a cool name. Yeah, me too. 
Uh, and plus, there's probably like a 50 million ice capes who've already taken all the other names. Yeah, that's true. Revel um, is in, about enjoying oneself in a lively and noisy way, especially with drinking and dancing. Um, I don't, I don't remember what Revel's power is. Yeah, actually. do we actually know what that cape does? I, I don't know if we I do. I don't know if we do. I was gonna look it up, but then I realized that that would be spoilers if we don't know. So we'll just yeah pass over Touché. that. Um, I also, do we know what Dispatch does? No, I don't we, think we so. don't. Well, I, I, I'm going to mention anyway that like this batch clearly has a dual meaning because it means like to send off something to a destination or for a purpose, but it's also to deal with a with a task quickly and efficiently. Yeah. Um, so I imagine there's that dual meaning, and probably his power has to do with sending something. I'm going to guess. Um, jouster is uh, a person who jousts. That's <laughs> very. Jester doesn't seem like the most creative cape in the world, uh, so that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find another meaning for that one. His um, power is pretty cool, though. We didn't talk about that, but his power is very interesting. Okay. He, like, attaches different things to his lance. Yeah. But he has to touch people with it, but he can move really fast. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's cool. I like it. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, I think we may have talked about Tecton before, but like one thing I, I found is that Tecton with a slightly different spelling, same pronunciation though, means um, uh, in Greek, mean it's a common term for an artisan or craftsman, in particular a carpenter or woodworker or builder. I think builder is probably the, the usage here. And then of course there's tectonic, you know, which is related to the earth's crust. So if you take those two meanings, it's like a craftsman of the earth's crust, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Remember when uh, they call him Tech in the chapter, and he gets really mad because he doesn't want to be known as like the Tech guy. Yeah, yeah. That was funny. Yeah, I like Tecton. Um, yeah, me too. Uh, and then Hoyden, who is uh, apparently that means a boisterous girl. Um, but it, <laughs> do we do we know what Hoyden's power I, is? I, I don't remember if we do. I think we saw Hoyden fight in the the Adeps, uh room i can't remember uh, what she did i though. should completely remember that but uh we just read it multiple just, times just but did. i cannot remember you know, it. you know we've been talking for two hours i think we get some some leeway there um that's also fair. apparently hoyden is derived from heathen um so that's that's a that's a thing there um, words it just popped into my head of course we also have golem um which is we, we don't know his power yet but that's uh you know that's the jewish Was he in it was he in a giant metal suit? I can't remember. Uh, I don't think he was in a giant metal suit. I think he was just in a, a normal, normal size costume. But uh, oh, was he? Yeah. I mean, I th- whatever it was, she mentioned that it blocked his voice. Yeah. And that's her excuse for why she heard Gollum. Gollum. Yeah. Instead of Gollum. Yeah. No. It. it uh, yeah. I think it was just the mask. Yeah. That's the Jewish myth of the, of the the clay um, creature that's animated with a, with a spirit. So, we'll see. Uh, We'll see uh, uh, what that means exactly. Um, all right, that's that's a good amount of it's a good amount of names for now. I don't know if we did the best job on some of them. That's okay though. Um, I, yeah. How about how about some some of those sweet juicy speculations, Scott? All right. Well, we don't actually have any old ones to clear this week. Um, I did guess that Behemoth is the next Endbringer fight, so I was right on half of it. But I also said um, that it will not the the battle will not go well. I, I don't know if it's safe to assume that now after the, the leader of the protectorate has been knocked out and uh, 
and and the chief strategist in Accord has been knocked out as well, with Tattletail also hurt. So I can I think we can assume at this point that it's not going to go great, but uh, I'm going to hold off on that one until we know for sure. Okay. Um, as far as new ones, uh, the first one I have this week is that either Accord or Chevalier is not actually dead. I, I really want it to be Chevalier because I like him so much. But there would be a certain irony to the non-symmetrical Accord surviving the fight and having to live with his non-symmetricalness. Um, so I guess I'm saying Accord's not dead and, and Chevalier. Chevalier is because this book hates me. But anyway, um, that's that one. Okay. And then my second one, the one that I hinted towards, uh, was that, that, that Brian is going to be the undersider that does not make it out of this fight alive. Um, I, I've been saying for a while that that it feels like Brian has reached the end of his personal arc, and I don't know if there's a lot left to do with him. So it just seems fitting that uh, that that he will do something in this fight and and not make it through. So that's my guess on that one. All right, awesome, good uh, good speculation, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks, Matt. <laughs> and uh, that will wrap up our coverage of Arc 23 Drone. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. And we promise next week to actually address them, because we'll be back to our normal schedule. That's right. Uh, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Uh, we will also be resuming my regularly scheduled uh live tweet read-throughs i'm sorry guys we did not have one for this week i know you guys really wanted it um i'm sorry but we'll be back to normal next week and and hopefully bearing any any uh emergencies i said bearing i meant barring it's weird um i've been talking for two hours it's an excuse yeah um we will keep that normal schedule matt i think through the end okay um awesome so unless something else crazy happens but shouldn't i'll mark it on my calendar all right if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, we have a new episode of the Daily Planet podcast, including a spoiler-free discussion of Blade Runner 2049, as well as a talk of my top five favorite films from Fantastic Fest 2017. You can find that over on our main channel, along with all the other podcasts we do. And Matt, I want to I want to take some time right now because I want we plug so-called writers every week, but I want to talk about so-called writers because we're for once not running over on time. Okay. <laughs> so um, this is a great podcast idea. Um, I want everyone that's listening to this podcast right now to go, if you haven't listened to so-called writers before, go on our main feed and, and try out the first episode. They're 45 minute episodes ish. Uh, this latest one was only like 30 something minutes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's Matt and Michael writing for 30 minutes and then they read their stories out loud and talk about them. It's fascinating. If you, if you are a writer, I think it's a fun activity to participate in if you're not a writer but are just curious how the writing process works how all this stuff works it's it's a great conversation it's like the thing that i look forward to most now and i, I know i'm a little biased because it's on our channel but i really enjoy this and i think you guys out there really will too and i i i really strongly suggest you give it a shot yeah just just to just to plug it for for a second i, I think i think that like there's 
anybody who has any interest in writing, I think, would enjoy it because, first of all, you get to hear like a really short piece of fiction because anything that takes thirty minutes to write takes hardly any time at all to read. Um, and and then and then you get to hear like an analytical discussion of it. And then I think a lot of people's favorite part is actually the end where we 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 uh, discuss all of the other you know the audience submissions on the subreddit, and we talk about what we liked about those. And it's really great to have the level of audience participation that we're having. And, and uh, obviously, it would be even more awesome to have more and to have a, a bigger community. But it's, 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 really, it's really awesome. Um, I'm really happy with, with, with the show and, and with what it's becoming. So, yeah, please do check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, let's see. That's, yeah, so if you want to support any of our shows, including this one, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford, and we would really appreciate it. Special thanks to new planeteers at the $1 level, Chloe and Thomas. Yeah, Matt, and I don't know about you, but I am having an absolute blast chatting with all of our patrons over at the, the Daily Planet private Discord server. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I spend more time on there than I should because I have so much other stuff going on, but it's it's so much fun chatting with some of you guys. So if you are not a patron yet but want to join the conversation, um, literally any level, any level you donate at gets you access to that server. There's a great number of people over there right now, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's really active. I'm, I'm very yeah. very happy with how active it I am, is. I am too. Yeah, also speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. He is the guy. Um, and if you can't spare any extra cash at the moment, that's absolutely fine. Uh, consider heading on down to your local middle school and encouraging everyone to try both drugs and our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> or or if you don't want to get arrested, you could uh, simply go on to iTunes and, and rate and review us. This week's iTunes review comes from... Uh, TOS Open Faint, which is a reference I don't get, but uh, he gives us five stars and says, best worm podcast out there. It's an absolute joy to listen to these guys review my favorite web series in such a detailed and astute manner. Huge props, guys. Thank you so much uh, for your kind words and and taking the time to review us, TOS Open Faint. Um, It it really, honestly, it does help. Every review we get, it really does help, and we, we appreciate it so much. And, and a quick note for our international audiences, I, I do have like a, a service that pulls your reviews from the international iTunes stores because I can't see them because I'm on the US one, um, but it only updates once a month. So those of you that have left reviews from other countries in September that I have not read yet, I just got those like yesterday. So th- they're coming up. So if you're wondering why your review hasn't been read yet, that's why it's coming. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a pretty cool little, uh little application too yeah all right that's it for us this week uh next week we're covering arc 24 crushed uh where we will finally resume our normal schedule hopefully for good uh scott based on the name what do you think crushed is going to be about i mean clearly behemoth's just gonna sit on everyone right i feel like that's pretty obvious yeah um yeah you're right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in all serious no i think i think wild bow is like literally using every definition of crushed here pro- probably like physically crushed as in that's gonna pro- probably happen to someone um the resistance to behemoth will be utterly defeated and crushed and everyone's emotional state will be absolutely crushed after they get totally crushed in this battle where behemoth crushes everyone all right so basically i think this fight's gonna go real bad um 
Awesome. Let's begin. Well, we will find out next week on another exciting episode of We've Got Worm. <laughs> <laughs>